0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Elementary, my dear. I'm Imer Maguire, and in today's episode, we're talking all about colour and light. Mike Sims explains the chemistry of colour, while art curator Kim Milwini tells me what makes a good piece of art. This is a six part series where we explore the wonders of some of the most fascinating elements in the periodic table. Elements are everywhere. And each week, we discuss their importance in unusual places, from the radioactivity of bananas to the elements essential to future technology. Coming up on today's episode. I talk to elements expert Mike Sims. We chat about how elements have their own colourful barcodes, and if some of us can be more sensitive to colours than others.
1: If somebody living in a very, very colourful world, and growing up in a very colourful world, will be able to distinguish a much bigger range of colours.
0: I also talked to art curator Kim Mawinney. She tells us how elements are integral to the art world, especially within ceramics and glass artwork. We also hear what makes a good piece of art and how artists use colour to evoke an emotional response from audiences.
2: The elements have always played a huge role within the ceramics and glass world. Both are very scientific in their production and technical but the one thing that they rely upon very heavily is compounds, in particular metallic oxides.
0: Let's start things off with Mike. I'm here with Mike Sims, the curator of the Elements Exhibition and for today's episode we're going to be talking all about colour and light. So Mike, one of the first things that you think of uh, in terms of elements, is that they're all they're usually quite dull looking. They're silvers and greys, um, but some of them are coloured. You know, why are some dulled and why are some coloured?
1: Well, most of the most of the metals, the solids, are actually kind of silvery grey. Yeah,
0: that's what I think. Of. Yeah, yeah, they're
1: all pretty much the same. And what actually is happening there is that. They are more or less reflecting all the light. So if you shine white light at them, they come back as gray. So they're they're not absorbing very much. They're just sending all that light straight back out again. The elements that have a little bit of color to them, which is not many at all, actually, um, sulfur, gold, copper, bromine, can you name any more? No, uh, that's probably about it. Um, And what's happening there is that they are actually absorbing a little bit of some of the wavelengths of light So gold, for instance, will Mm -hmm. be absorbing uh, a bit of blue light. And so as a result, what you see is the complementary colour, which is yellow. So that's what it is. So most of the metals are just sending back all the light you shine at them. But so they're absorbing a little bit, which is why they look a little bit dull. Ah, OK. And that's why silver. Silver is the most reflective of all metals. And so it looks, well, silver. Uh, (laughs) And you make the best mirrors out of um, or you did in the old days. Uh, was made out of silver glass because it's incredibly reflective. The pure elements, are, colour-wise, are pretty boring. Mm. But it's when you join them with other things, you get you know, a panoply of colour.
0: Yeah, so can can you kind of take specific elements and use them to create colours and, and know what you're creating, kind of like a painter's palette?
1: Yeah, very much so. And, and in fact, the painters with their palettes did, did know this. So there were a whole series of... Uh, uh, of elements that would produce particular colours, um, some of them quite toxic. You know, this is going back to some of the uh, podcasts on toxic things. So cadmium, <laughs> cadmium produced some very attractive yellows, oranges and reds, but quite nasty. Um, and then a whole series of other sort of compounds. It's usually the what we call the transition metal compounds. Metal compounds, they tend to produce the coloured things and the ones that people might be aware of, cobalt, Mm-hmm. So cobalt oxide, of course, is that brilliant blue. and you add a Beautiful bit of that, cobalt to, blue. Yeah, you add a bit of that to that to glass, and you get the brilliant blue. And then you've got copper, can produce blues and greens, and also reds and blacks. Yeah, so there's a whole range of different colours you can get from different elements.
0: One thing I always wonder about colours is, you know, the colours that I see through my eyes are they the same colours that someone else sees? You know, I know you're talking about light going into colours can kind of change how they look you know depending on how much they absorb and things but will I see the same as you we're sitting at this table now is this the Mm. same colour blue to me as it is to you
1: I would say not necessarily it's very difficult to to compare but you do get you go from one extreme you get people that are kind of colour blind selective colour blindness Yeah, red green colour blindness is a common one but there are others you know some people that don't really see very much at all it's almost like kind of monochrome and then there are other people, quite often artists, who see vast numbers of colours, and they say, "Oh no, that's that's definitely different." You think, "Is it?" You know. <laughs> so is I think there's different sensitivities to colours, and so uh, one person might just, say, "Oh, well, that's green," and and all those different dots there are all the same shade of green, and where somebody else say, "No, there's there's a dozen different shades there." So that's all kind of a combination of, I suppose your uh, retinal cells and also your brain the brain is the processing which effectively sees the color and so if you don't see anything when you're very young if you're blind at birth but your eyes work but there's no connection mm-hmm. then they get connected later on to your brain you don't you don't see anything because the brain has not been able to develop that okay it's too late you see
0: I've often kind of wondered that about the colours whenever you're you're learning your colours and you're learning your reds and your blues you know how do you know the person sitting next to you seeing the same thing as you are I think it's very fascinating
1: I think if if somebody living in a very very colourful world and growing up in a very colourful world will be able to distinguish a much bigger range of colours so my wife actually she she painted a, a colour wheel then you know colour wheels and it's got all these gradations of colours oh, yes. going around this big thing, which was probably about two feet across, and it was pinned on the ceiling above my son's cot when he was little. <laughs> so he does have a good eye for colour, actually.
0: Yeah, if you so. want your if you want your kid to be a be an artist, that's probably a good thing to good thing to do. Different elements can create different colours. Are you able to kind of reverse that and use colours to be able to identify what elements are present, either here on Earth or even further away?
1: Yes, very much so, because. Um, on earth you can do a simple test sometimes you get a piece of copper or or some other metal and you you put it in a flame it'll give you a distinct sort of color and you might see a particular color but that is actually not just that color it'll be a whole series of lines of different colors so every single element when it's kind of heated up or excited it produces a series of uh, wavelengths of light and they're very very kind of sharp lines it's like a barcode when you actually see it you see a barcode where you'll see so well sodium lights you know there's ghastly street lights that mm-hmm. are orange the reason they're orange is because sodium when it's heated up produces two very very strong lines close together that are orange and so that dominates that spectrum you see and every single element when it's kind of heated up has its own unique barcode and this was actually quite useful in the early days of trying to uh, isolate elements. And there were two that were first recognized as existing. Actually, I can think of three that were first recognized t- to exist because um, from their their barcodes, the spectrum, mm. yeah, so each has its own unique spectrum. And and those, the two elements in particular, uh, owe their name to their spectral Code as it were, one of those rubidium because it had very strong red lines, mm-hmm. ruby, uh, and the other one was indium.
0: And oh, indium okay. is an
1: indigo, you see. So, that they were named after the very sort of strong spectral lines that they had. And everybody, of course, would be very familiar with indium touchscreens on mobile phones, indium tin oxide. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. touchscreens.
0: See, I always thought that iridium was the kind of LED screens and things, but are the touchscreens?
1: Yes, indium tin oxide. The great thing about indium tin oxide is it's it's a conductor and it's transparent. And there's not ah. many things that are like that. So you can touch it, and and it it usually just thinks you don't want it to. Uh, my experience of touchscreens, but <laughs> uh, very annoying. Um, I didn't yeah. know that was the
0: element that was.
1: Yeah, and indium is is getting sidetracked now. But indium is a very interesting element in in itself, and also very difficult to get hold of because there are no ores of indium. Yeah. But anyway, indium is named after those spectral lines, uh, indigo, and every single element has its own unique spectrum. And there was one, helium, which, of course, everybody's familiar mm-hmm. with helium. Helium was first recognised in the spectrum of the sun. The light coming from the sun, they could, uh, these scientists, they could, the telescopes and the spectroscopes, they could get all these different lines and they could sort of sort them out. Oh, this is a bit of iron and this is a bit of hydrogen. Oh, what's this one? This is... Something different, and that was a new element which should not be isolated on Earth. And that's what's called helium, Helios after the Sun. <gasps> that's and amazing. And then it was, it was kind of a decade, I think, or more before it's found on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can do that in the Sun, you can identify what elements are in the Sun, and it's mostly hydrogen and helium. You can do it further afield. You can do it anyway. You, you know, if you're getting light from a, st- a star billions of light years away, it will be bringing that information with it, it will be bringing all these little bands. And you can piece together what elements are there.
0: Well, that's amazing. I didn't know kind of colour and light and elements would have such a strong link and even such a strong link to space. That's fascinating. And even as you're saying in the technology that we use with some of those elements.
1: Yeah. Yes, it's amazing. All sorts of odd things turn up when you start peering into yeah. space, you see elements. You'd think, what's that doing out there? There's a there's an element called technetium, which is very, very short-lived. It's on Earth. It's only kind of produced artificially. Um, very kind of radioactive and there's a star somewhere in the universe which for some reason is producing lots and lots of technetium We think what's going on there <laughs> you know, <laughs> what's that you know sending out the all these, these strange signals yes
0: so one of the things i i want to touch on because we're we're going to talk about it later in this mm. episode with with our artist is vanta black so vanta black is you know the blackest color that has been created by an artist the Kapoor, but it's just a really really dark black why is it so black well, well, what's the science behind that?
1: The, what it is, it consists of, of lots of very long nanotubes. Uh, and nanotubes, as their name implies, are s- tubes that are very small. Mm-hmm. And they come in a range of different sizes. So they're not all uniform size. They're kind of, some are slightly bigger than others. And they're very long. Uh, and they're carbon nanotubes, so they're black anyway. Carbon actually is, is, is very black, it tends to absorb an awful lot of light. So, soot, for instance, absorbs 90% 97% of the light that hits it so it only reflects back 3%. So we tend to think of soot as being very dark and sooty. So you've got these tubes made of carbon and they're very long and they're all orientated sort of vertically effectively. So the light shines onto this band black and the light kind of beams or individual photons they go down and because the photons yeah the wavelength of the light is kind of broadly comparable to the size of these tubes they kind of goes down and then it kind of really struggles to ever get back out again so most of it kind of gets lost somewhere down in these tubes um it's like being in a in a forest if you're in a in a, in a woods with just quite small trees you know there's quite a bit of light gets through mm-hmm. but then you go to somewhere with bigger trees and yeah it's a bit darker and then if it's really you know huge trees not much light gets down yeah. there because it's all being intercepted by all these things and it's bouncing around bouncing off things so that's what's happening with Vantablack these photons are kind of bouncing down these tubes and they just, just they kind never of really get out just yes.
0: consuming the light yes. so in, in
1: theory you would think well ultimately the thing might kind of heat up because that energy's got to go somewhere but um
0: so is it not reflective at
1: all you know oh it is but not much you know, so very so, minimally. So, it, so it reflects 3% of the light so that it Vantablack
0: says. must be darker than
1: that yeah Vantablack Reflects zero point zero three five percent. I thought it was gonna be something incredibly low. It's a hundredth um, of what soot reflects. So it's really, nothing. really black.
0: If you ever see something um that looks fanta black, it just looks bizarre. It looks like a black hole nearly. Yes. Have you heard about the BMW stunt with fanta black?
1: Oh no. No. Actually I have, yes. Because so it's actually it's it's a, it's a paint, I think, isn't it?
0: Yes, yeah, so it's a paint. So yes, the, this artist, yeah, Anish Cooper has developed this paint colour. He, he's copyrighted it. It's him that has licensed to use it, but he must have worked in some way with BMW because this year, just in August, and actually in September, they're I think they're showing this car in, in Germany at a at a kind of event. Their X6 Coupe that they have, the BMW, they have painted it, as they say, the blackest black. They've used Fanta mm. black. And they actually, you know, BMW call that car the Beast anyway. But they yeah. have actually said because now it's Vanta Black, it looks even more menacing and even more more scary. It must be kind of like a PR stunt, you know. Yeah, I saw a really big. I think I saw a really big advertisement sign for it at, at one of the Belfast airports. But the thing I know you're talking about the reflectance of it being mm. incredibly small. They have actually added one percent reflectance because mm. what they did was, whenever. They painted the car. The original Vantablack, I think you mustn't have been able to see. It. The car lost its shape,
1: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which
0: is incredibly unsafe. Yeah, it's just, for it's just a car. It, well, it just
1: almost just like be a, a sort of silhouette cut yeah. Out of Yeah, so
0: I think it's just it, lit, yeah, silhouette. Literally, just must have would have looked like a silhouette driving towards yeah. you on the on the motorway, which is incredibly creepy.
1: Yeah, we have to. So, oh, sorry sorry, might didn't see you there. Somebody <laughs> exactly. crashes into you.
0: I know you never get insurance on that. So but, they added one percent reflectance so wise. that you could kind of. Yes. They said, you know, you now get a hint of the shape, which still mm. doesn't sound mm. you're gonna see this massive yeah. BMW coming towards you. But I thought it was interesting that a big, big company like that have jumped on board with this whole Vanta mm. Black thing. Mm. And I don't know if other companies were, but, but but what kind of things, apart from using it as a PR stunt, what kind of things could Vanta Black be used for or what is it used for currently? Well,
1: I think one of the, the main things is that because it absorbs photons It's very good for picking up stray photons. So if you've got a telescope peering into the furthest reaches of of space, you're not getting many photons coming from that quasar, you know, 13 billion light years. And you don't want some extraneous photon kind of bouncing Mm. around and hitting, you know, the the camera at the end, you see. So it's used to line some of these telescopes so that it gets rid of everything except the ones that are sort of coming in. So you don't get things bouncing around you know, ricocheting off and, and mucking up your picture really that's one of the key things things where you want a very very black space and you don't want extraneous light it's the equivalent of a the light equivalent of an anechoic chamber
0: oh okay you, you've
1: been in those that's where you they're all kind of lined <laughs> I, with
0: yeah i haven't been shows. in them but i've kind of seen videos of people in them Be, bit, and only been able to manage been in them for a couple kind of, of minutes
1: they're a bit weird the sound is a bit well, there's not much. It's there's no echoes, you know. So.
0: People, have, I've heard people say they're they can be quite disorientating yes, yes. on things because you know it's just yeah. what well, is it? Just like a, a chasm of silence.
1: So imagine being in a, in a room of vanta black. You know, you just you know, walls, incre- floors, and oh. ceiling. You know, you just <laughs> that
0: would be incredibly disorienting. It's like do you know, whenever you you kind of if you're up in the night, you're walking around your house and it's dark, but your your eyes very quickly become yeah. accustomed and you can kind of start making things out. Vanta black's not like you that. It's just would. everything disappears into yes. the black. Yeah. Hmm. I know, that's amazing, I might go um, get myself wee panda black (laughs) Mike Sims, thank you so much You're listening to Elementary My Dear with Emer Maguire Next up, I'm going to have a chat with someone who views the elements as having an important place in their world of art Kim Mawinney is the Senior Curator of Art at National Museums, Northern Ireland I thought it was important to have a chat with someone who was passionate and knowledgeable about art for today's episode. I wanted to know if people in the art world felt that elements played any role in their creative universe. Today I am here with Kim Mawinnie, who is the Senior Creator of Arts at the National Museums Northern Ireland. How are you Kim? I'm very well, thank you Emma. So we are going to talk a little bit about art and how it's related to the elements. Before we jump into that, could you tell me a little bit about your journey to becoming a Senior Art Creator?
2: Well, from I was a very small child, actually. I had a cousin who was studying at Queen's University. And when I was nine, um, she brought me to the Ulster Museum. And as I was wandering around the various galleries, I made a decision at that tender age that I wanted to work at the Ulster Museum. And I was very lucky that at school, I obviously had shown a flair for art and I was able then to attend Ulster University and I got a degree in Combined Studies in Art and Design but the whole way through that I was trying to work as a volunteer at the Ulster Museum and looking at the types of exhibitions design and my current practice at that point was also Fine Art Photography. and. When I left the university I worked as a volunteer at the Ulster Museum in an area that I hadn't really any experience but they were just bringing in a new digital collections management system and I redocumented the entire ceramics and glass collection for the Applied Art Curator and I really learnt hands-on then the history and how to appreciate, right up to the contemporary collection that we had and were continuing to buy at that time within the applied arts. And I was very lucky that that person who i had been working with retired and I was able to, to get <laughs> his job. And I worked with ceramics and glass for nearly 10 years and then I was appointed the senior curator of art and was responsible for a lot wider remit than just ceramics and glass.
0: I haven't really met anyone yet who has from a very young age wanted to be a curator of art so that's that's quite fascinating. Um, Obviously this podcast is all about elements so could you tell me a little bit about what art there is on display in the elements gallery? When Mike
2: proposed elements at an exhibition planning team meeting it was one of those moments that we went oh yes that's going to be brilliant (laughs) we all really got behind it and you could see the potential because the Ulster Museum isn't just an art gallery it has the science collections it has history collections archaeology collection world cultures and it really meant that we could design an exhibition that highlighted amazing works and specimens from across all those collections so we jumped at the chance that the art collections could be part of the elements exhibition and from my previous background the elements have always played a huge role within the ceramics and glass world both are very scientific in their production and technical but the one thing that they rely upon very heavily is compounds in particular, metallic oxides that actually give the pottery and porcelain and the glass the colour that they have. So the majority of the artworks that are in the Elements Exhibition are under the colour banner or the themed case. And there's a lot of ceramics and glass in there, very purposefully because we could show the raw pigments that artists across the board have used but also it allowed us to get out a lot of beautiful things from the collection.
0: I'm sure whenever you were thinking about a career in art you weren't kind of thinking about the whole interdisciplinary team of the science and the art together but it's nice to think that it can be quite twofold. You'd mentioned there that they're organised under the colour banners. Could you tell me a wee bit about artists that use colours in very specific ways?
2: Oh yes i maybe talk about the ceramic side of it because that was the first thing that really triggered in my head when Mike said about this exhibition. Because I had been very interested in early porcelains and early delfware, and they were decorated usually with cobalt, mm. uh, which is blue. People will recognize the idea of blue and white pottery and porcelain and I mean the blue and white really started from the first century out in China with the Tang dynasty but the real height of the really amazing quality of painting on porcelain was during the Ming dynasty and we're very lucky in the collection to have some nationally important pieces but really it wasn't until the 16th century that that porcelain and the blue and white Chinese designs made their way to Europe through Dutch traders and in Europe we basically tried to copy this porcelain because it was translucent and all the pottery and stuff that they had made previous to that was quite hard and heavy and, mm-hmm. you know, wasn't beautiful and spectacular and pretty. So this um they tried to copy it and in fact they had their alchemists, all the heads of state in Europe had their alchemists try to find out what secret ingredient was in porcelain <laughs> to make it translucent. And it wasn't until a guy called Butcher at the end of the 17th century, found this potence that they added into the china clay that created the translucency. And that was really the birth of the Meissen factory, which opened in 1707. So that blue and white and the Chinese typical designs were then copied by the Meissen factory and then subsequently across Europe. But ordinary people couldn't afford porcelain. So, again... Basing on the the element side of it, they used their ordinary pottery and covered it with a white tin oxide glaze and would have used the cobalt, again, decoration on it to try and mimic the porcelain. But (laughs) it was far from translucent (laughs) um, and it chipped very badly. So Mm -hmm. that's where you get the Delftware because the Dutch... Around the Delph region, we're copying that, but here we would call it myolica as well, or tin glazed earthenware. So, blue was a very strong colour mm-hmm. that was used at that time because it was coming from Persia and it was very expensive. And then you see colours and dyes and everything becoming much cheaper, and different processes being employed in the 19th century, like transfer printing on pottery, um, which then brings pottery and porcelain out to the masses. Mm -hmm.
0: I think just imagining that kind of cobalt blue on the white there, it's a lovely image, and everyone's quite familiar with that image. So Kim, you were talking about there being ceramics and glass in the gallery as well. Could you tell us a wee bit more about the glass and how the elements impact on it?
2: Yes, glass is a really interesting, again, very sort of scientific material because it's not just used for decorative purposes, it's also used in the nose cones of space shuttles, it's used for heat-treated glass, like parax, etc. But one of the things that I'm fascinated about is the early decorative glass and from the 17th century into the 18th century a lot of glass that would have been made across Europe would have had a very green tinge within it because of the ash that they would have burnt down through their forests and that would have given that this green within the um, glass mix and people in sort of northern Europe weren't very keen on that green glass Mm. color so it wasn't until really the start of the 18th century when they realised that if they added lead to the mix it would actually not just strengthen it but also give it a different colouration it gave it a sort of grey colour but also they added lead oxide to it to decolourise the glass so it became a much brighter, clearer colour but it's interesting that there's been lots of fashions over the years Mm. for collecting glass and I don't know whether you're your grandparents or your granny or whatever your great granny had ruby glass it was something that previous generations (gasps) prized very highly and they would have got it as wedding presents and things like that and the reason why ruby glass was prized so much is it's actually a collodion of gold that actually gives it the red colour so the ruby glass is actually gold within it another fashion in the Victorian period was to collect glass that was coloured with Uranium and uranium used to give the glass a bright yellow or green coloration. And I remember when I started in the museum, there was a notice came round asking how much uranium glass we had in our collections because there was quite high readings of radioactivity from some of the the old uranium glass and private collectors who had amassed lots of hundreds of pieces of uranium glass were actually advised to break up their collections or get rid of them but thankfully in the ulster museum we actually only ever had one piece of uranium glass which is on display in the elements gallery and it's a little champagne glass from the victorian period
0: kim another color i'd wanted to talk about was fanta black now myself and Mike spoke a little bit about that earlier, and I know artist Anish Kapoor developed it, and we talked more about the science behind it. But I wanted to get an insight into Vanta Black from someone in the art world. So could you tell me about it from a more creative point of view?
2: Basically the there was this like technological company in England called the Surrey Systems, and they developed a method of making colour which is highly scientific and I couldn't even begin to try to explain to you how they actually make it. But it's it's basically a sprayable colour. So mm. it just looks, when you see anything painted in it, it just looks like a hole. It doesn't look like, it, it loses, even if it's say a model of someone's head and you paint it black, it just looks like a blob. You can't see any features on it from a distance. Anish Kapoor is an artist, he's a sculptor, but he works in so many different media. Mm -hmm. I'm very lucky I've seen several of his exhibitions. And honestly, he plays tricks with your eyes and the use of color. Sometimes you'll see something that's on a wall and you think it's just a black circle, where in fact it's actually something you could stick your arm into and push in through the wall. Wow, okay. He does play with your mind and he actually licensed to be the only artist to use Fanta Black so it's quite funny because obviously a lot of other artists would be interested in using something like that and experimenting with it so he really caused a bit of a stir and people there was a bit of a war between several (laughs) artists who then tried to bring out their own different (laughs) colours. Of black or of any colour? Of pink actually believe it or not and there's a memorable photograph somewhere of A certain finger being held up by Anish Kapoor (laughs) in this particular pink that somebody else had registered just to them. So if you ever want to buy this Fanta Black from the Surrey nanosystems, you have to say that you're not going to use it for artistic purposes as such, because Anish Kapoor Mm -hmm. is the only person that can use it.
0: Yeah, Mike said that you could use Fanta Black for lining telescopes to give you a clearer picture. What else could you use it for?
2: Well, military. Really? Yeah, it's for, like, that's one of the reasons why it was actually developed. It's the disguising of aircraft and things like that. So it's, yeah, so there's a complete covert Uh (laughs) operation there as well. But artists have used colour basically for centuries, obviously, but in the 20th century, people like the abstract expressionists and the pure abstractionists, people like. Mark Rothko colour field painters like Morris Lewis they used colour in ways that allowed the public to have this emotional response there was nothing there other than the colour for you to respond to Mm -hmm. and I mean it's quite controversial because people say well that's just a a rectangle of blue and is I'm that all thinking, it looks
0: like just colors on a page it's not it people can be, it's not shapes.
2: Um, you know someone like eve klein who has a blue actually named after him because he made this particular saturated blue paint and you know it is to evoke a feeling mm-hmm. it's not to give you a story or something that has a theme within that painting it's actually to evoke an emotional response from the public.
0: And do different colours evoke different responses within
2: us? Oh I'm no psychologist or psychiatrist but yes you're always told the things like that you know there's calming colours Mm -hmm. and then like red would be an angry colour and you know certain colours that you would paint different types of rooms and then you know anything that's medical, the whole idea that you've got green crosses Mm -hmm. all that sort of thing. Yeah there is a language to colour Yeah, and there's been many books obviously written about the whole idea of that, you know, what colours mean Mm -hmm. to various people.
0: It's lovely that there's such, you know, still such a link to art in that elements gallery. And as you said, that it kind of marries the art and the science. So just before we go, obviously, you're you're the creator of art. What do you look for in a piece of art yourself? That's a really
2: interesting (laughs) question and a very difficult one to answer. (laughs) In recent years I have been involved with a lot of portrait exhibitions and I think one of the things that I've always thought when we've been selecting exhibitions, the art is one element of an exhibition but the other main element to me is the person and the viewer, the visitor, the audience that come to look at that artwork and it's their response to that art, artwork that then actually completes the artwork. So if I see a painting or a sculpture or a piece of ceramic and I look at it and I go, that, that doesn't make me have a reaction. I don't tend to think it's a particularly great work of art. Mm. But if I walk towards a painting and I go, I want to know who that person is, if it's a portrait or, you know, why did the artist decide to just use that colour blue? Or, you know, if it has a response that makes me question something, that's when I think an artwork's great.
0: That's probably a lovely way to think about it because obviously not being from an art background, I just think it's all about how it looks. But obviously with with your expertise and knowledge, it's about how intrigued it makes you and how it makes you feel. Kim and thank you very much. Thank you, Emer. And a big thank you to today's guests. I've always found it mind blowing to think that the red I see may not be the same as the person next to me. I also love the idea that we can use colour as clues as to what elements are hiding in the universe and that artists can be so possessive over their work that they'd actually copyright colours for their use only. (music) To end today's episode, I thought I'd share a fascinating fact with you all in today's theme of colour and light. If you've ever seen a picture of Mars, you'll notice it's a kind of red or rusty colour. And the reason for this is that Mars is absolutely covered in the compound iron oxide. It isn't surprising to learn that this is the same compound that gives blood its colour. And of course Mars is often referred to as the red planet. Sometimes the dust from the surface of Mars is actually blown into its atmosphere, making the sky look a pink or a light orange colour. Isn't that amazing? Coming up in the next episode, we hear all about gold and other precious metals. From what's inside your touchscreen to the history of gold in Ireland, and what to do if you're ever lucky enough to find treasure. Thank you for listening to Elementary, my dear, with me, Emer McGuire. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. Also, I would really love if you could take the time to leave us a review. Reviews help other like minded people discover our podcast. Elementary, my dear, is created by Emer Maguire and National Museums Northern Ireland. You can also follow me on Facebook at Emer Maguire, on Twitter at EmerM and on Instagram at Maguire Official. For further information, you can check out National Museums Northern Ireland at nmni.com.